In the New Testament, there are more than 100 references to demons. In the Gospels alone, there are 17 mentions of demonization. Just ahead, we'll look at the spirit world at the time of Christ, and we'll be reminded that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Welcome to The Land and the Book with Dr. Charlie Dyer, noted Middle East scholar and expert on all things that have to do with that region. I'm John Gager, Charlie's sidekick, always glad to connect with you. And Charlie, boy, the world is in a spin this week. It really is, John. Uh, there's never a dull moment in the Middle East, but this week has put uh, many other weeks to shame. Yeah. The rapid fall of Afghanistan to the Taliban took many by surprise. What repercussions will the fall of that country have on the Middle East and on the rest of the world? Well, let's start with the impact on Afghanistan. You know, thousands of Afghanis have worked for or helped U.S. and NATO forces over the past 20 years. We failed to anticipate how rapidly the country would implode, trapping them inside Afghanistan with no way of escape. Their lives and the lives of their families are now threatened, and sadly, many will be killed. The impact on believers in Afghanistan will also be harsh. They will be persecuted for their faith, and many will be martyred. We need to be praying for the church in Afghanistan. The impact on women in that country will will be dramatic. It was the Taliban who denied young girls the right to attend school 20 years ago. People might not remember that it was just 20 years ago when Afghanistan was the land of the blue burqas, where women were forced to be covered from head to toe. The Taliban have now said that they'll honor women's rights. But the same day they made that promise, they shot and killed a woman for not wearing a burqa in public. Now, just beyond Afghanistan, there will be a negative impact on U.S. influence in the Middle East. Hamas has already congratulated the Taliban on their victory over the U.S. Other terrorist groups and regimes will be encouraged by our rather chaotic pullout. This collapse will also have an impact on our other allies in the region. The message this sends to the Gulf states, to Egypt, even Israel, is that when the going gets tough, don't count on the U.S. to keep going. Hmm. As the U.S. influence diminishes in the region, China, Russia, Iran, and Turkey are already working out ways to rush in and fill the void. And finally, John, don't count out the possibility of a more direct impact on our country down the road. Remember, we invaded Afghanistan because the Taliban had given al-Qaeda a safe haven there. This is where Osama bin Laden planned the attack on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon almost exactly 20 years ago. Watch to see if al-Qaeda or ISIS or some new variation of those two returns to Afghanistan and sets up a base of operation there. Uh, With Pakistan on one side of the country and Iran on the other, it's easy to see this region becoming a safe haven for radical groups to return, reorganize, and regroup for future attacks on U.S. interests at home and abroad. Uh, These radical jihadists, John, have long memories. They won't be satisfied simply to have the U.S. out of Afghanistan. Their long-term goal is still the destruction of the U.S. and Israel and the establishment of a worldwide Islamic caliphate. That might not be right around the corner, but don't dismiss their ambitions. Remember, no one expected Afghanistan to fall to the Taliban this quickly. Well, while the world focused on the fall of Afghanistan, fewer have paid attention to the equally dramatic collapse taking place in Lebanon. What is the latest on the situation there? It continues to descend into chaos. The country's leading hospital said it might need to close due to fuel shortages. Many homes are now receiving just two hours of electricity a day. 
To keep the country from becoming totally insolvent financially, the central bank eliminated subsidies for fuel and bread. Huge lines formed outside gas stations and bakeries. The Lebanese army stepped in to seize hoarded fuel at some gas stations. And then last Saturday night, a fuel tank exploded, killing at least 27 people and injuring dozens more. Reports suggest the fuel had been hoarded by Hezbollah to be smuggled out of Lebanon into Syria. The leader of the Christian Lebanese party responded by announcing the time had come to bring down the government by all available means. They blamed Hezbollah for the disaster and for much of the political and economic unrest. The head of Hezbollah responded by saying he would work together with Iran to save Lebanon from its crisis and promised to import fuel from Iran, though it's not clear how that would be done. But back to the core problem, the lack of food, water, and electricity has brought the country to a state of complete chaos. Hmm. The cost of food to feed a basic family is now five times the national minimum wage. Uh, The danger is that the three main religious groups, the Sunnis, the Shiites, and the Christians, will descend into a type of religious tribalism, putting the immediate needs of their own friends and family above the welfare of the nation. Uh, The country could easily resort to an every-man-for-himself approach for survival. Hezbollah, with Iran's backing, is the strongest of the three groups, but that also makes them the greatest threat to the other two. From 1975 till 1990, Lebanon experienced a disastrous civil war that killed an estimated 120,000 people. And sadly, it looks like they could be descending into that abyss once again. Uh, The one hope is that a new government could soon be formed to take charge of the situation. Now, we've been waiting for that for a year, so the time is running out. But that would open the door to international aid, which is dependent on having a stable government in place. Uh, We've just got to watch, John, and pray for that country. No shortage of drama on today's edition of The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. We're looking at current events, and boy, have we had plenty of events this week there in the Middle East and, of course, across the world. Charlie, three weeks ago, you discussed an engineering report stating that the bridge used by non-Muslims to reach the Temple Mount, we've been on that, was in danger of imminent collapse and needed to be replaced or closed by September. With just two weeks to go, has any progress been made? Well, in a way, the answer is yes. Uh, The government has evidently decided to do minor repairs on the bridge. The plan is to gradually replace the wooden beams that are in such bad shape. Now, this would allow the current bridge to remain in use. Uh, The one interesting revelation that came out is that the tender, or the invitation to bid on the renovation work, required the applicants to sign a non-disclosure agreement. The prospective bidders were not allowed to publish any details about the tender, not even the fact that it exists. Now, that was probably because of the politically sensitive nature of the project. Palestinian media had already expressed outrage following last month's engineering report. They claimed the Jerusalem government was planning to build a new bridge, and they claimed the exclusive right to do that for Muslim authorities alone. Uh, One Palestinian source said the new bridge would be 16 feet wide and 230 feet long. Now, to put that in perspective, the current bridge is only about 10 feet wide, so it's unclear where this so-called source got his information. But Mm. 
Back to that deadline, apparently prospective contractors have already toured the site to see exactly what needs to be done. So it looks like repairs will be moving forward, but they're likely to be minimal and done quietly to hold down Muslim protests. But hopefully in the not too distant future, tourists will be able to walk up to the Temple Mount without having to worry about the bridge collapsing under their feet. Charlie, let me just ask you, if you were there right now and you were leading a group, would you have faith enough in that uh, bridge? Yeah, I would. Uh, I've been on that bridge, and you know, again, is it is it in danger? Well, I say it is. I just trust God enough on that, but uh, I'm more worried about what happens when I get on the Temple Mount than uh, getting up to it. <laughs> okay. Well, archaeologists recently claimed to have discovered the Trojan horse used by the Greeks to destroy the ancient city of Troy. As a kid, I was fascinated by this story, so Charlie, I have to know, how valid are these claims? Yeah, uh, I've been to the site of ancient Troy, and, and I've seen the rather cheesy Trojan horse that they have on display there. Let's just say for that one, a, a giant wooden horse with side windows and a large stairway in its belly probably would have been a bit suspicious to the people of Troy. But what was uncovered really is more fascinating. The excavators say they found dozens of planks and beams, some of them 49 feet long, inside the site of ancient Troy. They were assembled in a strange form that led the archaeologists to suspect they might belong to the ancient Trojan horse. They also found a bronze plate with the inscription, For their return home, the Greeks dedicate this offering to Athena. Now, a plate like that is mentioned in an epic poem about the Trojan War, but that poem was written about 1,400 years after the fall of Troy. So, have the archaeologists actually found the famed Trojan horse? Well, I'm just not sure. Uh, the articles reporting on the discovery didn't include any photographs showing what was actually uncovered. So, until we see what was found, I remain just a bit skeptical. Now, the plaque's interesting, but its validity relates to a poem written long after the event. Until more details are published, including photos, it's probably best to say the Trojan horse might have been discovered. Now, personally, I hope it does turn out to be true. Maybe Turkey's tourism ministry could then erect a more realistic model at the entrance to the site. And that's a look at current events in our very turbulent Middle East this week here on The Land and the Book. Coming up next, it's Dr. Fred Dickison and the spirit world at the time of Christ. And then, Charlie, you're back with a look at uh, questions from listeners. And then we'll wrap it all up with a devotional. Where are you taking us today? Uh, we're heading on a two-part devotional this week and next week, and we're going to be looking at four small animals that can teach us very important lessons. Okay, we'll look forward to that and more on The Land and the Book. Our website has information about every guest, every program, and Charlie's devotionals as well at thelandandthebook.org. Fred Dickinson next with The Spirit World at the Time of Christ. There are more than 100 references in the New Testament to demons. In the Gospels alone, there are 17 mentions of demonization and four in the book of Acts. Has it ever struck you that the spirit world was busy, unusually busy at the time of Christ? This is The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger. Before we get to this unusual look at the spirit world in the time of Christ, let's tank up on another idea of loving our Jewish friends for Christ. Helping you help your Jewish friend find Yeshua in the Old Testament. That's our challenge as we sit down with Michael Rydelnik, general editor of the Moody Handbook of Messianic Prophecy. Where would you take us? I would say, you know, so often people say Jesus was some sort of victim 
No, this was a choice that the Hebrew prophets said he would make to suffer for us. It says in Isaiah 50, when it talks about the suffering servant, it's a first-person kind of statement, a poem written in the first person. He says, I gave my back to those who beat me mm. and my cheeks to those who tore out my beard. I did not hide my face from scorn and spitting. Isaiah 50, verse 6, what he is saying is, I willingly suffered. I did not go to the cross as a victim. It was my choice. That's what the Lord Jesus taught. No man takes my life, but I lay it down willingly. He gave himself for us because it was his choice. He was not a victim of oppression. He was one who chose. He could have called those angels to deliver him, but he chose to die for us. Our thanks to Michael Rydelnik, professor of Jewish studies here at the Moody Bible Institute, joining us on The Land and the Book. Dr. Fred Dickison is an engineer by training, but God steered his life in an unusual direction. For 34 years, he taught full-time at the Moody Bible Institute, where he was named chairman of the theology department. He taught in the grad school as well. I first met Dr. Dickison in the classroom as a Moody student. I loved his humility then. I love it now. And uh, Dr. Dickison's books are considered classics. Angels, Elect and Evil, Demon Possession and the Christian, Winning the War Through Prayer. His latest release is Dangers of the Spirit World. I read it cover to cover. A link is at our website, and it's great to connect today on the land and the book with my teacher, our friend, Dr. Fred Dickinson. Good to have you with us. Thank you. Good to be with you, John. Well, you know, it seems to me anyway, at the time of Christ, there was a lot of dark or demonic activity, more than what we see today. Is that just unawareness on our part now, or was there actually more of a visible presence of the demonic back then? Well, I think we could see very clearly there's a real opposition to Christ when he came into the world. You know, one of the major reasons the Son became human was to destroy the works of the devil. Hebrews 2 tells us that Christ came into the world that he might render powerless or disable him who has the power of death the devil, and that he might deliver those who through fear of death are all their lifetime subject to bondage. That's one of the major reasons he came. First John chapter 3, verse 8 tells us that Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. The word there, luo, means to uh, shatter, to undo, to hmm. loose the works of the devil. Okay, let me ask you then, what was different about 21 A.D. versus 2021 A.D. that there would be more demonic activity back then? Well, I'm not sure that there was more back then. We have the same number of angels. They don't procreate, you know. (laughs) (laughs) And so they were very active then, but they were particularly opposed to Christ entering their world to redeem the race that they had ruined. The battle was begun in the garden with Adam's sin of distrust and rebellion, and it affects every one of us. Satan led Adam and Eve into uh, sin, and that's dominated the race with blindness. And in that day, they were blind to some degree, but open perhaps even more to the spirit world than we are today. They didn't have that Western worldview. They had more of a biblical worldview, which we really need. Is it an overreach to connect Galatians 4, 4? It says, but when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law with the state of darkness and oppression that gripped the world when Christ was born. Well, I think uh, they knew 
that Christ was born, and I think they had an idea that he, where he would be born. The scripture tells us quite clearly the time frame of Messiah's coming. So the word came as light into the world, and the word could not be overcome, says the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 5. If believers uh, today were transported back to the time of Christ, what might stick out to us from the standpoint of spiritual warfare? People really believe that there was a very significant relationship to the spirit world, and there was real opposition from Satan and from demons among the theologians and among the common people. They knew that. They'd seen that. Dr. Fred Dickison is an electrical engineer turned Bible teacher and theologian. He says, quote, I hope that's not shocking. Uh, it's not, but uh, his specialty sometimes is the spirit world. His newest book is titled Dangers of the Spirit World. What, in your estimation, do we misunderstand or perhaps underestimate about the spirit world at the time of Christ? Well, we're different today. You see, we've been brought up on a Western humanistic worldview. No such thing back then. It was a biblical worldview. Israel was the place where Christ entered, and they were brought up in the revelation of God. But today, people do not understand that because of their background, ignorance, I'd call it, of biblical concepts, and actually fear. We don't want to involve ourselves with such things as the spirit world. Your new book is titled Dangers of the Spirit World, a warning to those of a materialistic, humanistic mindset. You write, we need to wake up. The enemies are at our doors, and we don't even recognize them. Maybe don't even know that they exist. Explain your concern just a bit further. Well, Christians believe that God is up there, and he's in charge. They know that we're down here, we live this life. But very seldom do people think about the activity that's going on in the world that's in between, the unseen world of spirits. And they're actively involved in every aspect of human life. They deal with the individual. They deal with the churches. They deal with countries. Remember in the Old Testament, we have Prince of Persia, Prince of Greece. They were uh, world rulers. And uh, Daniel had to deal with them. That is, even uh, the angel that was sent by God was delayed three weeks by the Prince of Persia. Eventually, though, God's side won. Uh, that yes, suggests he a said Michael the archangel, who's the top one of God's army, and uh, he relieved him. You might call it a tag team if you're talking about wrestling. And they were wrestling in the angelic sphere. But that speaks to the fact that our adversary is a very formidable foe. Oh, yes, he is. He's much stronger than we, and we need to realize that. And he's smarter than we, and he's been around for centuries, and he knows the human frame, and he's a pretty good psychologist. Hmm. We're talking with Dr. Fred Dickison, a former professor of mine at the Moody Bible Institute, where he served for 34 years, many of those as chairman of the Department of Theology. Uh, he's written a number of books, including Dangers of the Spirit World, our focus today on the land and the book. Uh, in one of uh, your chapter summaries, you point out, in taking our stand in this constant and serious opposition, we must, one, recognize the reality of demon activity in spiritual warfare, two, recognize our position of authority in Christ, three, declare our allegiance to God, four, clear our minds by confessing and renouncing sins that might interfere with our abilities to handle the battle. 
I want you to dig deeper into point number four, your warning about confessed and unrenounced sins. The enemy uses what we call ground, that is, moral occasion, to attack people. Most of it comes from uh, the ancestral background, where God says, I visit the iniquity of idol worshipers upon the third and fourth generation. And it just scrolls on down till somebody cuts it off. So it comes many times from the ancestral background, sometimes from personal involvement in things occult or demonic. A third way would be uh, the enemy would have access would be through some treatment received that's strange or occult. So again, to this issue of unresolved or unrenounced sin, sounds to me like confession is job one and get it done fast. That's right. We must be clear with the Lord, have communication with him, be filled with the spirit in order to handle the spirit world, which is much greater than we are. The Bible calls us to resist the devil. Let's make this very practical. Let's say a, a woman listening today has been feeling almost oppressed by thoughts of her unworthiness, or a guy listening today has been battling a string of sexual temptation. What does it look like to resist the devil in both of these situations? Well, first of all, we have to have a not only a biblical worldview that the devil is and the demons are real, but also the reality of Christ's great power and love and claim upon our lives. And so allegiance to him comes up number one. Submit to God is first. Then we can resist the devil. We resist the devil by obeying the word of God and by exercising our authority granted to us in the Savior. You know, Ephesians chapter 1 says Christ is far above all principality and power. And in chapter 2, he says we're raised and seated with him far above, so that we are actually in our potential, in our power, authority, donated far above the enemy. The demons believe and tremble. We can believe and trust and exercise that authority in standing against the enemy, saying no to the thoughts that come to our mind that are unwanted, and telling the enemy in clear language to go because we have that authority in Jesus Christ. Is that a verbal no, or can we say that in our mind? How is that no best expressed? Well, God is able to take the uh, silent no's and let the enemy know, but it helps us to say that out loud and to exercise our authority because what we say registers with us and registers with the enemy. Another comment you make in the book, if we're going to stand firm in the battle and win the day, we must know the truth about spiritual warfare. We should not back away in fear. But fear is exactly what many of us feel when approaching this conversation. So help us loosen some of that grip on fear. Well, the Lord came specifically to deliver us from the greatest fear, the fear of death. Well, all other lesser fears are included, and he has promised never to leave us nor forsake us. Our position in Christ is such that we have full acceptance in the righteousness of Christ, full access to his throne to come boldly to him in time of need, and uh, full authority, that is, provided authority to stand against the enemy. We have the confidence of Christ with us and Christ for us. One of the things that I appreciated most about uh, your book, Dangers of the Spirit World, is the frequent references to Scripture verses that point out the supremacy, the all-reigning, all-sufficiency of Christ, the omnipotence of God. Greater is He that is in us than he that is in the world. I walked away tremendously encouraged. I'm glad to hear that, John, because that's one of the reasons <laughs> that I wrote the book, 
to wake us up and to encourage us to take our stand and to be free from the trammels from all the chains the enemy would put upon us, whether they're mental, emotional, or physical. The role of grace uh, comes into play in this warfare. You write, rejecting grace is worldwide under the prince of this world. Demons attack grace with a purple hatred. Why is that? And what does that tell us about the importance of our acceptance of grace? Well, grace is a foreign name to Satan. I mean, he knows about it. But Satan cannot be redeemed, nor can his angels. Angels are not a race. Christ did not enter a race of angels. He could not. They're not a race. He entered the race of the humankind to become one of us, be our kinsman, redeemer, and to represent us as the last Adam, take our place, pay our penalty, and uh, join us in our battle. So you hear the strength, you hear the command of Scripture in Dr. Dickinson's voice. Let me ask you now, reveal it to the audience. Your age, sir, is? 94 years old. 94 years old. Let's assume that uh, this is your last big shot at a national radio audience. I hope it's not. You've probably got 29 other interviews lined up for all I know. But if it was, and you knew it was, what would be the last thing you would like to leave with folks on this subject of spiritual warfare, on this book that you've put together here? Realize that spiritual warfare is real. We need to take our stand in allegiance to Christ, confession of our sins, dependence upon our position in Christ, and put on the full armor of God. And we need to understand that that is a warfare stance that's common to all Christians. No Christian is without contact with spiritual warfare. So we need to wake up, get biblical, and put away the fear and take upon ourselves the confidence of uh, Christ with us and Christ for us. Amen. What a great conversation. We commend to you Dr. Dickinson's book, Dangers of the Spirit World, a link to that at our website. And a fresh batch of Dr. Charlie Dyer's questions are coming your way next. Not his questions, yours. Maybe it's one that you've emailed us, so stick around for more on The Land and the Book. lot of listeners, this next segment we're about to do is not just stimulating, it's challenging, it's it's riveting. I, I think uh, opening the word and getting answers to some of the questions that have puzzled us is a really neat feature. And Charlie, you're kind to let us ask those questions. By the way, you can email us yours anytime at thelandandthebook.org. Got a long list of questions to get to. We'll dig right in, Charlie. You ready? I'm ready, John. Here we go. Starting with a, a listener who's somewhat hostile. Uh, this person says, if you have been taught that the Bible teaches monogamy, you may wish to educate yourself with truth. The Hebrew and Greek show the real truth. Can you prove this wrong? Each marriage is a separate bond contract, and the Bible does not limit a man to one wife. Charlie, what do you say? Well, and John, if, if people could see this question, this thing went on and on and on and on. So uh, we are sparing them uh, some of the uh, gory <laughs> details. But here's how I'd answer. Uh, you know, we just can't take the time to go through every point of that diatribe. Uh, but the person's trying to justify polygamy. And my answer is you can try to justify it all you want, but all you're doing is distorting God's word. God's original design for marriage was found in Genesis 2.24, and it's monogamy. 
the man is to leave his parents and be united to his wife, singular in the Hebrew, by the way, and the two together will become one flesh. God might have permitted polygamy in the Old Testament, and he did permit it, but it was not his original intention. And when it is presented, like it is in the life of Jacob, the Bible shows the jealousy and petty infighting and other family problems that come along with it. In the New Testament, the requirement for an elder or spiritual leader was to be the husband of one wife. That's 1 Timothy 3.2. The Greek literally says a one-woman man meaning the elder had to be characterized as someone who was faithful to this one spouse. Now, if the spouse died, the one remaining was permitted to remarry, but the character quality being pictured is that of a man who was faithful to the one partner to whom he was married. Uh, My point being, in all of these passages, God's ideal for leadership, God's ideal for marriage was always one man, one woman uh, who were united together. Everything else that was shared in this uh, diatribe that was sent to us really looks like an excuse to try and justify living an immoral lifestyle. Let's go back to Noah in Genesis 8 and 9 in Tom's question. He says, The Lord sets two precise dates in this account, the first day of the first month and the 27th day of the second month. I believe that everything is in Scripture for a reason, so why were these dates singled out? They don't seem to align with other dates on God's calendar. What does the inerrant Word of God report on these days, Charlie? Why this precision? Yeah, and and I start by saying I agree with Tom. Everything that's included in the Bible is there for a reason, but sometimes the reason is simply to provide a clear factual basis of information. Uh, That's what I see happening in this case. By the way, while he mentions chapters 8 and 9, I can actually go back to chapter 7 as well. You know, we know the flood was a historical incident, and God recorded the exact day it began. He said it was the 600th year of Noah's life on the 17th day of the second month. That's chapter 7, verse 11. Uh, The exact number of days the water flooded the earth is given. It's 150 in 724. Uh, The date the tops of the mountains first appeared uh, is at beginning of chapter 8, the first day of the 10th month. The date the dry land appeared is given in verse 13 of chapter 8. It was the first day of the first month of Noah's 601st year. And then the date when the ground was fully dry is also given. Now, I don't see any symbolic significance in these dates, apart from the reality that Noah and his family spent one year and 10 days in the ark. The numbers have the ring of reality because they recount the exact amount of time as each stage of that event took place. By the way, I I see similar things happening in other places in the Bible. For example, when Jesus appeared to his disciples at the Sea of Galilee following his resurrection, you know, back in John 21, uh, in verse 11, John records that when the disciples cast the net on the right side of the boat, they caught 153 fish. Hmm. I don't see any theological significance in that number beyond the reality that The disciples took time at the end to count the fish because they were amazed at the large number they'd caught. This is The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. I'm John Geiger. Our host, Charlie Dyer, is working his way through a set of questions that have been emailed to us from listeners just like you. Just like Elsie, who says, I recently began listening to your program online. I thoroughly love how well you explain the scriptures. She has a question regarding the Revelation song, which has become quite popular in the past few years. There's a line in the lyrics about, sing a new song to him who sits on heaven's mercy seat, obviously referring to the Lamb of God, Jesus, our Savior. Please correct me if I'm wrong. I love the song and I sing it often, but I'm curious about the line in the lyrics that says, sing a new song to him whose blood is on God's mercy seat. Thank you for your thoughts. 
Yeah, and Elsie, your biblical understanding, I think it's right on target. The songwriters have taken artistic license, and in this case, by doing so, they've conveyed, I think, an incorrect impression. Uh, Hebrews 9 tells us, as our great high priest, Jesus did enter heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Uh, It goes on to say he appeared once for all at the very end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. And then in chapter 10 of Hebrews, uh, the writer adds, but when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. So I assume the songwriter combined those two images of Jesus offering of himself in the heavenly holy of holies and the imagery of being seated at the right hand of God. But you're right. Jesus isn't seated on the mercy seat in heaven. He's at God's right hand, which is an exalted place of honor and glory. Now, let me add, there are many Christian songs, old and new, with wonderful words and melodies that Mm -hmm. aren't always theologically precise in every point. If the song clearly teaches error, then it's best not to sing it. But if the problem is just a matter of artistic license rather than actual false doctrine, well, then a good response is exactly what you've been doing. Change those few words to match more closely what the Bible teaches, and then enjoy the rest of the song. Hmm. A question from Janie, who says, In studying Balaam the past couple weeks, someone shared regarding his prophetic utterances in Numbers chapter 24, that in the Hebrew, because of a new tempo, the audience is invited to this enhanced experience through an unforgettable rhythm and enriched clusters of word pictures in verses 5 through 9. Was this type of poetry prevalent in the Bible, especially the Psalms? I feel like I'm missing out on the rhythm because of translation as I read certain portions, if this is true. So, is there a Bible that captures the Hebrew rhythm, and is there any Hebrew music that I could listen to? Yeah, and the only Bible I know that captures it is actually the Hebrew Bible. So, unless you want to learn Hebrew, you're going to miss out on some of that. Hebrew poetry is almost impossible to translate into English in a way that captures all the nuances. It can contain a distinct rhythm as well as similarity and sound. For Here's just one example from that Numbers 24. In verse 2, it says, Naum Balaam Beno Baor. Now, in our English Bibles, that comes out as the oracles of Balaam, the son of Beor. Uh, The English translation doesn't capture the repetition of sounds or the staccato double syllables. Uh, Those aspects of Hebrew poetry just get lost in translation, but not everything's lost. Two key aspects of Hebrew poetry that are translatable are the use of imagery and parallelism. Imagery is that use of figures of speech and other word pictures to convey meaning. Well, we have similar figures in our language, so we can often picture what the writer's trying to convey. And parallelism is that placement of two or more phrases together to help paint a poetic picture. For example, in in Numbers 24.3, it says, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, and the oracle of the man whose eye is opened. Well, in the first line, we learn the name and genealogy of the one speaking the oracle. Parallel to that, in the next line, we learn who this individual is prophetically. Those two lines are speaking about the same person, but each line complements the other to provide a deeper understanding of the one about to speak. Parallelism like that is a key part of Hebrew poetry. Uh, The writers use synonymous parallelism, that is, the two lines may say exactly the same thing in similar words. Synthetic parallelism, where the second line adds to the thought of the first, or even antithetic parallelism, where the second line is in contrast to the first. And most English translations can help the reader spot that when the passage is poetic because uh, they set off the text in lines that let you know it's poetic. Now, finally, in terms of Hebrew music, 
Well, you can find online examples of psalms being sung by Jewish cantors or other Hebrew-speaking musicians. In fact, I'd encourage you to Google psalms sung in Hebrew, and uh, I think you'll find some good examples. Hmm. Eric says, I have a question on giving. I know it's important to give to our local church and other ministries. Every month I receive many letters that are requesting donations. These letters come from different ministries and a variety of organizations, and they all seem to be for good causes. So how do you decide which organizations to give money to? Yeah, you know, in humor, I'd like to say, and the word is Moody Bible Institute, but <laughs> uh, that's probably what some might expect, but that's not what I'm going to say right here. Uh, I think there's a lot of good organizations worthy of support. Moody is one of them, but sadly, there are organizations that misuse funds. You know, only a small fraction of the money donated in some organizations actually is used for the intent advertised. So here are some suggestions that can help you and others listening make wise decisions on whom to support. First, uh, give to organizations you have firsthand experience with. What groups have ministered to you or your family? Or what groups have helped out in your community? Uh, second, consider giving to organizations that are approved by your local church. What groups does your church allow to come in and share regarding their ministry? What groups does your church send volunteers to help? Those are likely ministries that have been vetted by individuals you trust. Third, look online to see how the organization is rated by Charity Navigator or by GuideStar. Both of those sites can help you learn more about how an organization uses the funds it receives. Now, it might take a little work, but I believe God does expect us to be good stewards of the resources he puts in our hands. Rather than giving a little to scores of ministries and organizations who fill our mailboxes, take time to find groups that most closely match your passions and desires, and then check to be sure they're using the funds they receive wisely. Once you've done that, I think you'll feel better knowing that through your giving, you're being a good steward of the resources God has given you. Hey, have we heard from you lately, your story about the land and the book's impact on your life, your Sunday school class, whatever it might be? We'd love to get an email from you, and here's how you connect the land and the book at moody.edu. Trust me, you have no idea how encouraging that email of yours is going to be. So send one off today, won't you? The Land and the Book at moody.edu. Coming up next, Charlie's devotional here on The Land and the Book. You know, the more you read the Bible, the more you realize how rich a tapestry it really is. It covers the entire waterfront of human question and emotion and awful lot of wisdom in all of its books, but perhaps none other more than the book of Proverbs from Wisdom Literature. This is The Land of the Book. Dr. Charlie Dyer takes us to Proverbs 30 today. Where are we headed, Charlie, and what are we looking at? Well, we're going to look at four wise animals uh, this week and next, and uh, this week we're going to look at the first two. Next week, we'll look at the last two. In Proverbs chapter 30, yeah. All right, that sounds interesting. I'm all ears. Ah, well, as you know from listening to this program, I believe that connecting the Holy Land to the Holy Book results in a life-transforming experience. Now, if that's all a trip to Israel accomplishes, people will remember it for the rest of their lives. But so much more takes place on a trip. For example, travelers have an opportunity to meet the people who live there. Uh, the living stones who can help them gain a new perspective on the events of the Middle East. And hopefully, people also get to see some of the other living creatures that call that part of the world home, the animals that play a role in so many stories and illustrations of the Bible. 
I love it when animals show up unexpectedly on our tours because it provides another opportunity to help illustrate the truth of the Bible. So this week and next, I want you to ride along as we discover the four wise animals of Proverbs 30. Our journey of discovery begins during our walk down from the top of Mount Arbel, the amazing cliff towering over the western side of the Sea of Galilee. The view from Mount Arbel is magnificent, but it comes at the end of a long, hot day. Most of our weary travelers are focused on hiking down to the bus at the bottom of the hill. But as I glance down, I see a line of ants scurrying across the path. I'm drawn to one ant in particular. It's half holding, half dragging a piece of grain toward its hole. Every pebble in the pathway looms before that ant like a giant boulder, and yet the ant isn't discouraged as it pulls, pushes, and lifts this piece of grain over the stones blocking its way. And the grain this little ant is carrying is larger than its own body. And that's when I recall to mind the words of Proverbs 30, verses 24 to 28, and the first of the four wise animals named in that passage. Four things are small on the earth, but they are exceedingly wise. The ants are not a strong folk, but they prepare their food in the summer. It's early summer now, right at the time of the wheat harvest, and here I am watching this ant gather the food that will sustain the colony through the rest of the year. This tiny insect at my feet is a living example of the ant in Proverbs 30. I lived for years in Texas, and we didn't go out to watch the ants there because most of them were fire ants. Those ants were to be avoided or poisoned, not studied, at least not by those of us who could swell up like a watermelon if we accidentally stepped on a mound and had them swarm up our leg. But the ants in Israel are different. They're not as vicious as fire ants, and They're fun to watch, especially as you observe their dedication and their diligence. But what's the point of this proverb? What are we to learn from these small creatures? The ants, the first of the four small things we're told to observe. The word for small, katan, can mean small or little, but it also carries the idea of being looked down on as insignificant. It's the word Jesse used in 1 Samuel 16 to describe his youngest son, David, the one whom he didn't think was important enough to bring before the prophet Samuel. In Proverbs 30, the writer is saying that ants might seem small and insignificant, but they display a wisdom that can teach us an excellent lesson on how to live life successfully. And what's the lesson we can learn from these tiny creatures? Ants might seem insignificant, but they've mastered the skill of planning ahead of gathering, storing, and saving in times of plenty to allow them to have sufficient resources to take them through later times of need. This tiny ant can teach us the wisdom of foresight and planning ahead. We spot the second animal from Proverbs 30 the very next day, during our time around the Sea of Galilee. Sprawled out on the rocks at ancient Chorazin are small, furry animals that look a little like the groundhogs I used to see in Pennsylvania. Most modern translations of the Bible call the animal a rock badger or hyrax, but I like the name given in the King James Version, the coney. As we watch these creatures scamper among the rocks, the words of Proverbs 30 again come to life. The conies, or hyrax or rock badgers, are not mighty folk, yet they make their houses in the rocks. These animals are definitely larger than ants, but they're still relatively defenseless. 
If they were to be caught out in the open, they could easily be taken by predators. But conies don't live out in the open. To spot them, you look for rocks, rock ledges along cliffs, or rocks piled up into stone fences, or ancient ruins. What's the lesson we're to learn from this insignificant animal? Conies had wisely sought out places of safety. They teach us the importance of not living foolishly, of making sure we don't unnecessarily expose ourselves to threats or dangers. Exercising care and caution in threatening circumstances is wise. Two tiny creatures, each small almost to the point of insignificance, and yet each teaches an important lesson about wisdom to anyone willing to listen. Someone who is wise knows, like the ant, to exercise foresight and to plan ahead. They know living life successfully requires more than just living for today. It requires discipline, hard work, and a willingness at times to forego instant gratification to save for tomorrow. Likewise, someone who's wise knows, like the coney, to protect against unnecessary exposure to danger and risk. Taking one's security seriously is wise. There are many in America who wish now that they had mastered these lessons and gotten their financial house in order before this most recent recession hit. But it's not too late to put these lessons into practice. God's principles for living life successfully never go out of style. Just ask the ant or the coney. And next week, we'll continue our tour through the land as we observe the remaining two animals of Proverbs 30 and the lessons we can learn from these seemingly insignificant creatures. Thanks, Charlie. You know, it's interesting when you go to Israel, uh, I think most of us are geared up to see the sites. And by that, we mean the places where Jesus walked, the places where the Bible unfolded. And we forget that animal life is alive and well there. And uh, how fun it was. I remember on one trip when we were in Capernaum, I know Dan Anderson, our producer, will recall the time we looked at these conies, these rock badgers referred to in Scripture, crawling all over the place. Got some cool snapshots thanks to that digital zoom. And uh, But I'll look forward, Charlie, to uh, next week's devotional as well. You might want to hear today's program in its entirety again. Did you know you could do that? A couple of different ways. There's our website, thelandandthebook.org, where you can always hear any past program again, thelandandthebook.org. Another great way to listen is through our Moody Radio mobile app. It's free, available for Android or iPhone. Just search for Moody Radio at your favorite app store. Then you can play the land and the book wherever you happen to be. Well, you know, it's always a great idea to let the management at this station know that you're listening, that you're growing from the program, that it means something to you. They're faced with lots of choices, trying to be good stewards of the airtime. So thanks for dropping them a postcard or an email. And let them know that the land and the book connects with you. Thanks for doing that. And why not connect with us as well? Love to hear your own testimony. You can email us anytime at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Love to have you visit our Facebook page, which is best visited with a click to our website, thelandandthebook.org. That's thelandandthebook.org. Our host is the legendary Charlie Dyer. Dan Anderson, our producer, I'm John Geiger. Do come back next week for more of The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.